0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we learned about the sex lives of women, anarchism in the black self, and the new and funny exhibit on display in Chicago. All this was Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for July 24th, 2020. I-94 chatted with Lisa Tadeo, the best-selling author of Three Women. Tadeo chats about her background as a sports writer, living in Dairyland, Connecticut, and why so few men have interacted with her book, which is an exploration of the sex lives of three American women. I-94, Lumpens Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m.
1: And we're joined by Lisa Tadeo, calling us from the bucolic wilds of <laughs> Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you?
2: I'm good. How well? How, thanks for having me.
1: No, this is wonderful. Thanks so much for being with us. I mean, this book um, has really created, first of all, a splash. So congratulations on that. <laughs> Uh, It's received rapturous reviews. It's been written up all over the place. Uh,
3: New York Times bestseller as well. Yeah, I mean,
1: first of all, congratulations. That's just an outstanding achievement. And we're always super happy when we see uh, booksellers actually being able to sell books. This is a great thing in this Mm -hmm. day and age. Did (laughs) you expect that when you started with this project? Because you were working on it for, for several years. Uh, and it seems like an unlikely bestseller in a way. Can you take us through a little bit about your process when you decided to confront this subject?
2: Yeah, I um, I had read uh, Gay Talisa's Thy Neighbor's Wife*, which was published in 1980, and it was a sort of pulse-taking of uh, sexuality in um in the U.S. during that time. And I I like I read it, I liked it, but it felt to me like a very male take on a subject that I had never read a book about female desire written from a female perspective. And so that was kind of the genesis of my wanting to write this book. And I didn't really know where to start. So I drove across the country six times. I posted signs up all over the country on like gas station uh, windows and um, in car. To go uh, in barbecue joints, uh, just uh, just basically everywhere. Um, and then the first thing I did for it was to move to rural Indiana, uh, which was kind of a a weird move. But the Kinsey Institute was there where they study sex, and I thought that being close to that that sort of um, to, to the to the sort of um, epicenter of where one studies, that would be a good place to start.
3: Can you visit the Kinsey Center? I didn't know that still was uh around i I know what it is but i didn't know that it still existed
2: no it does it still exists it's very i mean it's it's very it's a very um clinical place there's just it's it's all scientists who social scientists and regular scientists and biologists working to really um figure out how everything works and the reasons that we act the way that we do when it comes to desire
1: can We talk a little bit also about the way you wrote this book, because it is a work of literary nonfiction, which is an interesting genre. We were talking about it among us uh, before the show started. And, you know, it's it's not a genre that was really very popular until the 70s or 80s. And Mm -hmm. now, you know, they're teaching it in schools. But it's also a genre that's, you know, had its fair share of detractors. You know, there's something a little suspicious about the novelistic (laughs) techniques about something that's supposed to be factual. Can can you talk a little bit Mm -hmm. about why you made that choice? Uh, And, you know, later on in the the show, I do want to talk about the voices you use, but I'd really be curious about that because I know that you have a background as a journalist. You were a sports writer and uh, among other things. And I'd really love to know why you, you took that approach with this particular topic
2: sure so i had been writing um i'd been writing um uh nonfiction for esquire and new york magazine so that was how i'd made my living for the past um 15 or so years but i had always written fiction and actually my novels forthcoming next summer so I- i've never stopped writing fiction I did not want to write a book of nonfiction that I didn't want to read. Uh, I'm not so much of a consumer of nonfiction, so I wouldn't necessarily read a book on a topic that I wanted to read about if it weren't written by a um, a writer whose words I admired. So I kind of started from that that place of wanting to – to write something that I'd want to read and the second thing about that and the way that I told it was that I wanted the people to the readers to be as inside these women's heads as possible because I knew that um, I knew that being able to really see the specific lives of people that specificity is at times the only way we can really empathize.
3: And I think that combined with your empirical research, driving across the country six times, one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is that a lot of journalism these days isn't heavily researched. And I think, to me, that's why this book was so popular. A, it was written in a very readable way, and also that you did meticulous research um, You know, with three different women in three different places, and... To me, that's that's very impressive. I mean, how many years did it take total to uh, get this written?
2: It was just about a little under a decade.
4: Oh wow! You know, when I was I was reading, I I was thinking of an old. I think it's a, an Emerson line in one of his essays or something about how um, with a lot of great literature, you read a sentence and it's it feels like something you already thought but you could never put into words. That to me is how mm-hmm. it how it felt reading some of the characters. But then, you know, I take a step back and I, I realize kind of the artifice of what it is. It's you talking, it's not them. Did did these three women read the book and kind of have that experience? Like, oh, yeah, I guess I, I was thinking that, but I didn't put it into those words.
2: Um, well, I had the book professionally fact checked. Uh, and I also sent the book to all three women long before it was going to even be a proof so that they could say you know i didn't i don't feel that way i didn't mean that etc and surprisingly none of them um, wanted anything excised but they did want to add things so it was really a, an amazing process and they were a part of it in every way um, in terms of you know they they did say the things that are in the book um The the things that I think is uh, the reason that I think it's hard to sort of understand that is because I had spent years with each of them, texting with them, talking with them, going to lunch with them, going shopping with them. So when you do that much um, empirical research, that much and not even research, but kind of even though I always had a tape recorder or was taking notes, I also was having a relationship with them because it would be absurd to, to just say it was it was just a sort of clean you know interviewer interviewee relationship because after a couple of years it becomes obviously something more. Um, so it was, it was like having it was like you know talking to your friend yeah. for several years, your best friend whomever and only listening to them and not saying anything about yourself at all. So the conversation is almost entirely 98% or so one way. So having that much that much time that much space to act, ask the same question numerous times, you you get something like that. I just think that because many people don't spend that much time on a human being, period, let alone a quote unquote normal human being, that it would seem you know like it didn't really like it was more more uh, an overview than an actual granular specific these women talking.
3: I have a passage. It was on uh, page 19 from Maggie's story that I think ties into what Mike said really well. And it's it goes as follows. He's the sort of man who will never contract an STD, no matter how many filthy women he sleeps with. And at a state fair, he will not leave without multiple cheap stuffed animals. His arms will be pink and blue with victory.
4: That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, they, like, I, they, I, did, did she say that, or is that something that you intuited based on things she said? Because to me, it it just comes across so clear.
3: Yeah, it's like, it's exactly what you were saying. I think, Lisa, it's like talking with one of your good friends that they would mm-hmm. make an observation like that. And I like when I'm reading something and you read something and you're like, oh, I could have thought that, if that makes sense.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, with that in particular, she told me about, you know, a time that he had gone to a fair and he told her about, you know, having come home, home with things for his kids and feeling so great. And she told me how much that, meant to her it was like an attractive thing you know when it came to stds she said she felt safe with him because he was only with his wife that he was he had only ever been with his wife or so he told her so you know it was something that she never she knew he'd never had anything he asked her how many sexual partners she'd had made her feel guilty asked her questions about you know whether she was clean or not so you know going and it's just kind of a specific going over and over Everything like that, um, knowing the details of someone else's life told through the person that's obsessed with them.
1: We should also back up a little bit and talk yeah. a little bit about who the the women in your book are. And you you interviewed more women and then settled on these three to concentrate on. Is that correct?
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Yes. So, so the main characters of this story are a woman named Maggie, a woman named Lena, and a woman named Sloan And. Each of their cases is is fairly unique, and please correct me. I'm just going to give a little kind of potted recital for yeah. the for the listeners, but please feel free to jump in. Maggie um, has a relationship with a teacher, uh, and that is going to end up in a court case. And um, she's a student. Uh, she's a student, and I'm uh, I'm I'm not going to spoil it, but I'm going to say things don't work out very well. Uh, Lena goes through a a breakup in her own marriage, and then uh, has a relationship with an ex who is. I don't believe this is spoiling anything, but he's kind of a toad. Um, and Sloan is an upper, uh, she struck me as a very upper class woman whose husband uh, brings home other men and women for her to sleep with while she watches. And then uh, it turns out that one of these partners has not been as forthcoming with their own partner as uh, they might've been. And this backfires somewhat on on Sloan. Um, these are three fairly different uh instances of both female desire but i also felt female power and powerlessness um the two people in particular i would say lena and maggie were were pretty interesting to me and
3: well in both of them early sexual experiences one was a rape and one was statutory rape which you know is very common in our society but when your sexuality's developed and that fashion, it's got to skew the way you think about things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one, Maggie actually, her case had personal resonance to me. Um, there was a case when I was in high school of a theater um, teacher who was molesting students at the school and uh, this happened to yeah. a very good friend of mine. Um, he was arrested uh, and uh, obviously kicked out of the school but her, her case uh, resonated quite a bit with me because I remember my friend Telling me about this relationship when we were both, you know, fifteen and sixteen years old mm-hmm. in high school, could you talk a little bit about if we, if you don't mind, if we start with Maggie, talk yeah. a little bit about her case and her experience and why this was an important story to tell in the first place.
2: Well, I was in a um, coffee shop in Medora, North Dakota. I was researching this other possible story about a group of women being. Um, who were illegally in the country being trucked into the local oil fields to have sex with the men who worked there. And this was kind of early on when I really don't didn't know what the sort of book would look like. I never actually did until closer to the end. But um, while I was there, I read uh, a local newspaper. And in that paper, it had the story of Maggie, who had just brought charges against her t- teacher, her former teacher for an alleged relationship when she was underage. And The jury had seen it in a way that I was that quite shocked me, especially since there were these hundreds of hours of phone calls after 11 p.m. and midnight, some most many of them in the direction of the teacher to her. So I drove to Fargo. The next day I called her house, spoke to her mother and explained what I was doing. Man, the reason Maggie's story was so important to me was because, and I felt differently about it than I felt about the others, because with Maggie's, I really felt like telling her story to a wider audience would do something for her. And I, explained to her and this was way before me too so it was kind of a leap of faith on on her part and and it was kind of a a hopeful very hopeful um idea on my part but i said you know your town does not believe you and i i just think that a wider audience of people in different parts of the country and maybe hopefully the world will feel differently
6: (laughs)
0: Sports chatted with Alice Tippett, a painter whose flat, almost flashcard-esque work is now on display at the patron gallery. Tippett's deceptively simple work, only three colors per painting and not a brush stroke wasted, rewards repeated viewings with their sly sense of humor. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at eleven A.M.
4: So Alice, very excited to have you on the show today. Um, I think it's actually kind of a strange thing because I mean of the, the three of us who are hosting right now, um, only one of us has seen it in person and That must also be a sort of a a strange condition of this exhibition more than others. It's just that fewer people will end up seeing it IRL. Um, But they have made a a walkthrough for it. So people can look at that in addition to going to the the gallery, which does have um, hours by appointment if that interests them. Um, I guess one one thing that's very striking though, that I was thinking about with this is your work uh, and and this exhibition, which is paintings and works on paper primarily or exclusively um, does have this like incredible graphic quality that um, while obviously just about every kind of work is better to be seen in person, there is a way that some of the, um, the ideas at least I think can be conveyed relatively easily through this sort of um, this interface. Um, and I'm wondering just maybe to, as a beginning place, how your sort of thinking is, is shifting with, with the way that people are seeing things. Obviously, it's not the first time people are starting to see your images first through screens, but I'm curious if you have thoughts about that.
6: Thoughts on viewing through screens, like yeah, and and, <laughs> and and
4: the sort of like the the clarity of the image as maybe over the primacy of the object or something.
6: I mean, the pandemic has done funny things to viewing art, except that most of the art, the way that I viewed it, most art was online anyway. So, um, but I I do I do think. That even though they're they're very graphic and they they hold up online, but you do lose something by not seeing them in person because they aren't they aren't quite as severe in person. I think like when you see them online, um, you lose that sense of the painted surface and and other stuff that's that's evident when you see something in person, and that impacts your experience of. The
7: work, yeah, I feel like, and I I agree. As someone who saw it, I was when I was in the gallery. The first thing I felt was simply just the fact that people aren't going to be able to see all the, um, yeah, the painted surface essentially because they do read so graphically as images and read graphically as like um, online, like digitally. That like when you do see them in person, there's more nuance to. What is happening and occurring. And then there's also, I don't know the title of the painting, but there is a painting in the exhibition of a vase that sort of breaks into this illusionistic space with the reflection of a window that's on Glance. the vase. That's the What's title
6: that? of the painting. The title is Glance.
7: Glance, yeah. So that one even breaks through the graphic realm into another space. Yeah.
6: Because it has the reflection
7: yeah because it has the re- yeah it has a reflection and it's illusionistic um, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, thought that I guess be interesting in that sh- exhibition yeah.
5: I guess before we get too deep on the, on the question of surface, which I know that uh you could probably talk about a lot, maybe yeah. just tell us a uh, tell us a little bit about the show. In general, maybe for people who haven't seen your work or people who are just coming, uh, who are coming not in Medeus Res having seen the show,
6: yeah. So there are seven paintings and three works on paper. The works on paper, um, use text to kind of wordplay, um, my images. I usually reserve text for work on paper. So paintings though, are just visual or visual language. I think of myself as a language artist. And so even though the, there's no text in the paintings, they speak to you, um, because they, they are graphic like Jesse said, um, and they are evocative of signs, um, not just signs that you might see in public, but also just, um, I also think about like uh, images that are like, um, that are there to tell you something, whether it's like a a photograph of a vase in a museum catalog, like here's this vase. Let me tell you about this vase. It's centrally located. There's a kind of, this is information quality that I'm going for in many, in many of my paintings. Um, But getting lost in my own words.
5: (laughs) Well, no, I think, I mean, I think uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about the kind of like, I don't know, maybe infographic, like declarative nature of the paintings because I think that that is, you know, uh, not an untrue statement about your paintings, but something that I really have always appreciated about them is that a lot of the paintings are kind of, like, whimsical or, like, tricky. Yeah. Um, and I feel like when you, you know, when you describe them as kind of, like, a, maybe, like, graphic or indexical, like, it it doesn't account for the kind of, like, very uncanny feeling of the work. And I and thinking about talking to you today. I was just, you know, thinking about kind of the same questions that, uh that like jesse and and alex were commenting on and surface and thinking about like well why a painting mm-hmm. you know why not a paper cutout or like why uh you know like why does the why do these images like manifest in this form and i wonder if uh like if that kind of I don't know, it's not like a surprise. It kind of feels like a surprise sometimes. Like this this humorous aspect of the painting and like how that kind of relates to your relationship with like this uh kind of like straightforward, minimal linguistic style. Well, so like do uh, you think they're funny? Yes, of course.
6: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um there, I choose painting, you know, for most of my work because there's a whole history of painting to access in terms of genre, style. Um, Although I have my own style (laughs) for sure. And I, um, as far as humor goes, it's definitely, for me, it's a way into the, the work for other people, but also for myself not everything is funny. They're not always, (laughs) they don't always strike people as funny um, or humorous rather. Um, But it's a part of the work that I enjoy. I mean, it it makes it interesting for me. I'm interested in making it. And part of that is my sense of humor, like gets in there. Um, I would say that I'm a, I'm an elusive person in general and that's kind of how the work I think comes across. Like I, I don't want to be pinned down to any one, <laughs> any one thing. Um, so I'm always a kind of sidestepping away from things, just a few steps or turning something, you know, around a little bit so that it's strange and that strangeness is part of the the humor that's in there
4: can can you talk a little bit just since since you sort of um like forked the, the the connection between these two things about the difference for you between humorous and funny with the work
6: oh yeah well funny of course could be odd or off or um even wrong like feel wrong um and and of course humorous would actually be Make you laugh, <laughs> mm-hmm. so um, I think there are a lot of them that are funny, but not in the humorous, not in a humorous way necessarily. Size
8: matters. Size matters. With Kyle Seismankowski. Hey there, Jess. You ready to tape another episode of my life story? I was thinking we could go down to the rendering plant and I could talk about how I used to get slathered in pig fat and then let uh, the locals lick me off.
9: Well, as special and disturbing as that sounds, I was kind of hoping for the day off.
8: I don't know, what's the occasion?
9: Uh, if you must know, it's my birthday, and I was just kind of hoping something would happen.
8: Ah, Jess, I'm sorry. I had no idea. I, uh, so I didn't even get you. Well, wait a second. Here you go. A birthday popsicle stick. Did you just pick that up off the ground? No. <laughs> There's no
9: popsicle on it.
8: Ah, oh, jeez. I'm sorry. I didn't even know. That's okay. I, I didn't tell anybody. And, I mean, most of my friends are
9: uh, stuck in the southwest suburbs. So it's kind of hard to get together.
8: Well, what do you guys usually do?
9: Well, the last couple of years we've been going to Spa. King Spa? Kingspa? It, oh, it's a spa, you know, like a sauna,
8: a massage. Oh, a spa? We got those in Undertown. No, you don't. Jess, I'm going to take you to the best spa in Undertown. You're going to love it. Oh, it is that my... Do you hear my phone?
9: I think my ride is coming oh, right Je- now, Come actually. on, Jess,
8: let your father get you this. What? <laughs> I'm just referencing a tossed-off plot device from size Matters 75. Hey, did you notice our episodes are getting, like, super
9: self-referential? It's
8: almost like we're getting close to an anniversary or something. Anywho, come on, it's spa time. Do you
9: think this is sanitary?
8: Is it cl- I just stole it from outside Kimsky, so I'm sure it I, is.
9: I, I'm not super sure about this. Wait
8: until you meet the spa host. Ah, here she is. Nudia. Huh?
9: I'm better known as Octomomo. Momo. Hey. Octo, mom, didn't you like kill a bunch of guys? No, no, no. I have multiple hands and some suckers on my tentacles. I'm suing that witch. Ooh, wow. It's so late, and I I have to go do anything else. You just sit back, honey, and relax. Oh, ah, oh, oh, that's yeah. That ah, that's pretty relaxing. It's my secret six-handed massage. Now you just move here. Ooh, wow! And here, <laughs> this is great. And, here. and now for the scrub. Ah, uh, this is a little intense, Octomamo. Yes,
10: but we have to get all the barnacles off you before you go back to the ocean, otherwise your gills won't work.
9: I, uh, I don't have gills, and I, I'm pretty sure I don't have barnacles. That's what all the mermaids say. Uh, I have two legs. I, I think you're starting to
8: drop blood. Ah! Are you okay, Jess? Ah, Kyle, this was awful. Please save okay, me. Hey, Dr. Mamo, I think that's enough. But we haven't uh, even taken
0: off the first uh, layer of to coats.
8: I know, I know. I just... Kyle. Please, I'm sorry, Jess. I just tried to get you something for your birthday. I know birthday. you meant well, but that was not relaxing. You're welcome, Jess. Happy birthdays. <laughs>
1: This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump sends stormtroopers into American cities. Trump's troops attack peaceful protesters in Portland. Trump abruptly changes course at a somber press conference. The White House claims science is on our side. The post office begins a slowdown. Trump tries to ban immigrants from the census. And the pandemic is getting way, way worse. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1,275, July 17th. The United States recorded more than 75,600 new virus cases today, setting a new record. We expect to hit 200,000 Americans dead by November. In a related story, White House Press Secretary Kayla McEnigin, claimed the, quote, science should not stand in the way of sending American children back to school in the fall. She then falsely claimed that, quote, the science is on our side and that Trump wants municipalities and states to just simply follow the science, open our schools. In fact, the science says that American schools could easily become major virus spread zones due to outdated HVAC systems and an inability to socially distance. A new study in South Korea says that while children under the age of 10 are at reduced risk, the risk is not zero. Children above 10 spread the virus as much or more than adults. Chinese and Russian hackers have been trying to steal coronavirus vaccine research. MI5 said the Kremlin-linked group Cozy Bear is targeting vaccine research using malware and fraudulent emails. That group is one of the two Russian intelligence groups that hacked the Democratic National Committee servers during the 2016 presidential campaign. The United States later accused two Chinese nationals of doing the same thing and issued warrants for their arrest. In a carefully worded statement, the Pentagon effectively banned displays of the Confederate flag on military installations. Defense Secretary Mark Esper announced the new policy in a memo saying, quote, Flags we fly must accord with the military imperatives of good order and discipline, treating all our people with dignity and respect and rejecting divisive symbols. Esper's policy did not address renaming bases. Trump has defended the flying of the Confederate flag, claiming it's a freedom of speech issue. Trump's new Postmaster General said mail deliveries could be delayed a day or more due to a new cost-cutting effort. In a memo, Louis DeJoy said that if distribution centers are running late, they will keep the mail for the next day, and as a result, we may see mail left behind or mail on the floor. DeJoy is also attempting to institute a fourfold increase in package delivery rates because Trump is convinced falsely that the Postal Service subsidizes Jeff Bezos' Amazon. The postal slowdown could cause chaos in the upcoming election. In Florida, nearly 20,000 ballots in the last primary were discarded because while the post office received them, they did not deliver them. Trump acolyte Georgia Governor Brian Kemp banned his cities from requiring people to wear masks in public. On the same day, Georgia reported its second-highest new coronavirus case count to date. Day 1,276, July 18th. Trump blocked the Centers for Disease Control from testifying at a House hearing about reopening schools. The House Education and Labor Committee had invited CDC Director Robert Redfield to testify about safely reopening schools. Trump said neither Redfield nor any other official would appear for testimony, quote, because they have said a lot in public and need to focus on the virus. Trump claimed when people proudly hang their Confederate flags, they're not talking about racism. They love their flag. It represents the South. Trump also threatened to veto legislation to rename military installations named after Confederate figures, quote, I don't care what the military says, I'm supposed to make the decision. Trump's words were called, quote, caricatures of what a New York billionaire thinks Southerners feel by one of his own aides. Democrats made a formal request the FBI provide Congress with counterintelligence briefings regarding what appears to be a concerted foreign interference campaign targeting members of Congress. Following his firing, the Trump re-election campaign is investigating spending irregularities made during Brad Parscale's tenure as manager. Parscale controlled all campaign spending since 2017. Questions had previously been raised about ad spends on Facebook on Parscale's own page. Trump posed for an official Oval Office photo with several Goya Foods products. The photo came a day after Ivanka Trump tweeted support for the company amid boycott calls. Goya's CEO had publicly praised Trump. Also, the White House has moved portraits of Bill Clinton and George W. Bush to a small, rarely used room. Traditionally, portraits of the most recent presidents are given the most prominent placement. Obama's portrait still remains unhung. Day 1,277, July 19th. New reporting this week shows a bungled response at almost every juncture to the coronavirus pandemic, with the White House looking mainly to shift blame and avoid responsibility. Ideology and over-optimistic modeling played a part, but a major factor was Trump's bizarre statements and his refusal to wear a mask in public. Dr. Deborah Birx has also been singled out for overly sunny projections she had based on Italy. Her position, however, was repeatedly undercut by Trump, who attempted to blame Democrat-led cities for tanking the world's greatest economy. In a surprisingly rough interview on Fox News, a sweating and shaken Trump was repeatedly challenged on false statements by his interviewer, Chris Wallace. Trump insisted he'll, quote, be right eventually about the pandemic, claiming again it's going to disappear and that he has been more right times than any other person. Trump falsely claimed that many cases are just people who have the sniffles and that they are young people who would heal in a day. He then called Dr. Anthony Fauci a little bit of an alarmist and insisted the U.S. has the best mortality rate in the world, which is not close to being true. Wallace told him directly that was a lie. Trump became increasingly agitated, disputing polls showing him trailing in his re-election race. Calling Fox News the worst pollers, Trump called polls that show him losing badly to Biden, quote, fake suppression polls. When told Biden was chosen in the Fox polls as the most mentally sound candidate, Trump disputed that finding and brought up his cognitive test again. Wallace pointed out that one of the questions on that test asked people to identify an elephant. Trump replied, because yes, the first few questions are easy, but I bet you couldn't even answer the last five questions. I bet you couldn't. They get very hard, the last five questions. In fact, the final question on that test is write your own name. The preceding four ask you to count backwards from 100 in increments of seven or other numbers. Trump has asked Congress to strip billions of dollars out of the federal budget that would have funded coronavirus testing. Republicans have pushed for a $25 billion package. Dems are seeking more. Trump has repeatedly claimed if there were fewer tests conducted, the numbers of infections would be lower. This is, of course, false. The director of the CDC said the pandemic could be brought under control over the next four to eight weeks, quote, if we could get everybody to wear a mask right now. Trump subsequently told Fox News, I don't agree with the statement that if everybody wears a mask, everything disappears. Trump said he might not accept the result of the election should he lose. Claiming, I think mail-in voting is going to rig the election, he said people displaying Confederate flags were a victim of cancel culture. Trump then ended the interview by making numerous false statements about Joe Biden, all of which Wallace rebutted. Day 1,278 July 20th, the city of Portland is seeing intense demonstrations and a severe federal response with unmarked armed officers apparently snatching people off the streets. The presence of federal authorities in the city has ramped up suddenly since protesters targeted a police station. Acting Homeland Security Chad Wolf called the demonstrators violent anarchists. The agents deployed come from the U.S. Marshal's Special Operations Group and a Customs and Border Protection Team. Wolf also attacked the Portland mayor and other officials saying, quote, The mayor would have you believe that enforcing federal law incites violence. He would have you believe that holding criminals accountable incites violence. I don't need invitations by the state, state mayors, or state governors to do our job. We're going to do that whether they like us there or not. I asked the mayor and governor, how long do you plan on having this continue? Mayor Ted Wheeler responded, saying federal officers, quote, are not wanted here. We haven't asked them here, and in fact, we want them to leave. What we're seeing is a blatant abuse of police tactics by the federal government. Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum also sued the Department of Homeland Security and the Marshals Service after unidentified federal agents grabbed people, quote, without a warning, without a warrant, and without providing any way to determine who is directing this action. Nancy Pelosi publicly called the units unidentified stormtroopers and said these are not the actions of a democratic republic. Trump and his stormtroopers must be stopped. The pandemic continues to race across America as more reports of the Trump administration's shambolic response comes to light. 3.8 million Americans have now been infected and 140,000 have now died. Deaths are increasing by 75% week over week. In Los Angeles, Mayor Eric Garcetti that coronavirus was spreading to the extent where a new stay-at-home order is imminent. In Florida, Representative Donna Shalala called in her own governor, Ron DeSantis, to issue a mask and stay-at-home order, saying, quote, We have to shut the state down. Trump suddenly tweeted that face masks are patriotic, following months of refusing to wear a face covering in public. It is not known what led to that. And the Sheriff of Jacksonville said he cannot provide security for the Republican National Convention because of a lack of clear plans, funding, and enough officers. Duval County Sheriff Mike Williams said, quote, we are not close to having some kind of plan that we can work with that makes me comfortable that could keep that event safe. Day 1,279, July 21st, in Florida, in what is expected to be a harbinger of nationwide action, teachers' unions sued Governor Ron DeSantis over his emergency order, forcing schools to fully reopen. Most major school districts have opted against opening, but DeSantis, a Trump acolyte, has forced an opening even as his state has become the world's hottest spot for the virus. The union seems to be on solid ground as Florida state law says schools must be, quote, safe and secure. Trump plans to deploy federal law enforcement officers to Chicago and threaten to send agents to other quote, Democrat cities to quell ongoing protests over racism and police brutality. Quote, we're going to have more federal law enforcement, I can tell you that. In Portland, they've done a fantastic job. They've been there three days and they really have done a fantastic job, no problem. In fact, the state has sued the federal government over the deployment after several citizens were beaten on camera by police. Trump also called Chicago a stupidly-run city and claimed violent crime in the city can be solved easily. Trump created the new federal force drawn from Customs and Border Protection in the U.S. Marshal Service in an executive order. It specifically directs the DHS, which previously focused on terrorism, to protect historic monuments, memorials, statues, and federal facilities. In a related story, the Senate rejected a bipartisan effort to scale back Pentagon transfers of surplus military gear to police departments 51 to 49. Trump signed a memorandum seeking to ban undocumented immigrants from being counted in the census, reversing a long-standing policy of counting everyone regardless of legal status. The directive, which will surely be challenged in court and has already been rejected once in the Supreme Court, would have the effect of suppressing voter counts in important credential redistricting. This is thought to help Republicans. Trump's memo directs Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross to collect data about immigrants for the purpose of withholding those numbers from totals. It is not clear how undocumented immigrants would be identified. A whistleblower in the State Department said they witnessed misconduct by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and his wife, and that that conduct was covered up by other high-ranking officials in the department. Pompeo is being investigated for misuse of resources and for illegally using public money for personal political activities. Trump also fired the Inspector General, Steve Linick, who is investigating Pompeo. The complaint also appears to accuse Pompeo of making false statements about his activities. And Trump tweeted that, quote, the game is over for me if he sees a player kneel during the national anthem. San Francisco Giants manager Gabe Kepler joined several players in kneeling before their victory against Oakland. Day 1280, July 22nd. In an abrupt reversal and reading from a script, Trump said the pandemic would get worse before a widespread recovery. Trump also urged citizens to wear masks. That was a stunning departure from past comments. He has suggested that people who wore masks were making a political statement against him. Trump also raised eyebrows when he offered good wishes to the imprisoned Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell is facing federal charges for her alleged involvement in grooming women that the disgraced Jeffrey Epstein subsequently sex trafficked. The CDC said infections are between 2 to 13 times higher than the numbers publicly reported, but that the U.S. is nowhere close to achieving herd immunity from COVID-19. We passed 1,000 deaths yesterday for the first time in a month. The American ambassador to Britain, Woody Johnson, said that Trump had asked him to see if the British government would steer the British Open Golf Tournament to Trump Turnberry in Scotland. Despite being told this was inappropriate, Johnson raised the idea of Turnberry playing host to the Open with the Secretary of State for Scotland, David Mundell. Mundell demurred. Trump's re-election campaign is fighting cell phone carriers over the right to send unsolicited texts. A third-party screening tool blocked Trump texts in early July. The campaign alleges that screening the texts amounts to suppressing political speech. Carriers however say allowing them will result in fines for violating anti-spam rules. Trump has been detaining migrant children in hotels and then deporting them despite federal anti-trafficking laws that require kids to be sent to shelters for placement with family sponsors. The United States has used three Hampton Inn and Suites in Arizona and Texas nearly 200 times. However, 10,000 beds for children sit empty at government shelters. Rod Rosenstein told Congress to gasps that agents also were, quote, ignoring age limits for child separations from families. Day 1,281, July 23rd. The pandemic continues to surge in the United States with cases and deaths both rising. We now have four million cases in the United States. The US reported more than 1,000 daily deaths from the coronavirus for the second straight day for the first time since May. Alabama, California, Idaho, and Texas also recorded daily death records. California has become the hottest spot in America with 415,000 new cases. Illinois is seeing a sharp uptick, with the highest new number of cases in July over 1,600. In Ohio, Governor Mike DeWine, a Republican, suddenly issued a statewide mask order. Minnesota and Indiana are following suit. In a related story, Trump and Attorney General William Barr said federal agents were surged into several American cities to combat rising crime. Hundreds of federal agents already have been sent to Kansas City and Albuquerque, in Mexico. Hundreds of agents are to be sent to Chicago. In making the announcement, Trump falsely linked protests to the death of George Floyd to the, quote, demonization of the police. He called protests in Portland, quote, worse than Afghanistan. Oregon's governor, Portland's mayor, and the protesters have all said that DHS agents have only increased tensions in the city, and mayors throughout the U.S. have called on Trump to pull back the agents. Trump also claimed virus cases soared after the protests about George Floyd, which is false. In response, Joe Biden, for the first time, called Trump a racist. In Portland, Mayor Ted Wheeler was tear gassed last night by police as federal agents tried to repel peaceful protesters. Wheeler said he saw nothing that would have justified that reaction. In Congress, Republicans appear poised to offer a short-term extension of unemployment benefits that are set to expire this weekend. That proposal includes another round of stimulus payments, additional aid to small businesses, and does not include a payroll tax that Trump had pushed for. It also includes increased money for COVID testing. Trump is running a $20 million ad spend promoting fear and attempting to spend a false narrative about Democratic elected officials allowing dangerous protesters to create bedlam. The ads use false and exaggerated images to claim that lawless anarchy would prevail if Biden wins the presidency. Trump abruptly ordered China to close its diplomatic consulate in Houston, Texas, accusing diplomats there of economic espionage and attempted theft of scientific research. China vowed to retaliate. Consulate employees burned paper and opened metal barrels there, prompting firefighters to rush to the area. Canada's federal court ruled that an asylum agreement the country has with the U.S. is invalid because the Trump administration is violating the human rights of refugees. A compact between the U.S. and Canada requires refugees to request protection in the first so-called safe country that they reach. The court declared that was unconstitutional due to the chance the U.S. will imprison the migrants. The ruling also found America was not safe for those seeking asylum. 77% of Americans say school either should not reopen in the fall or reopen with major changes and limitations. Joe Biden is now tied in polling in Texas with Trump. He leads him in Florida and now nearly every other battleground state. Biden continues to lead Trump by as many as 15 points nationwide. Trump's approval rating continues to fall. It is now at 35%. These are the Trump Diaries.
0: Studio A has been closed due to the pandemic. Please enjoy this encore presentation from Awful. They were recorded and mastered by Ari Shellist.
10: Now, I'm not a huge fan of the concept of the Doomsday Clock. I would prefer it to be more of a rebirth cycle. But the the Doomsday Clock is a physical entity that exists uh, in Hyde Park uh, out of our very own University of Chicago. uh, And it's operated by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And whenever there's there's issues in the world or things seem to ge- be getting better, the, the doomsday clock moves one way or another. And unfortunately, with what's going on with Mallow 21, the doomsday clock has been moved from uncertain times to unprecedented times. It's really... Um, Quite concerning in a lot of ways that even even these very middle of the ground, very mainstream scientists are seeing the sort of uh, emotional and spiritual reckoning that that is occurring from this ongoing pandemic. Yes, at at first, uh, at first, if if I'm understanding this correctly, the clock was built in sort of a symbolic gesture to uh, uh, to connect uh, the communities of Chicago together, um, and, and understand these situations that they're in. However, most re, more recently, it's, it, it's, it's come to, to take more of a, of a, a more actual and, and, and physical and, and consequential, uh, meaning to many in Chicago. And, and this change is, is something that we've never seen. I mean, really, really, this, this, Many didn't even realize that, there was, a, uh, that where there was an unprecedented setting on this clock. It, it was unprecedented. This clock was even able to be unprecedented.
9: Broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 p.m.
0: The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>